Hi, I'm Greg Potter, and this is 20-Minute Collaborations. Welcome back to 20 Minute Collaborations. I am driving to, not actually right now, but I am in my car. I'm driving to Arkansas and Oklahoma. I've got some speaking gigs that I've got to do, and my soul needs to reconvene with my roots in Little Rock, where I went to graduate school. My life lately has been an interesting coincidence of running into people that I have not seen in a very, very long time. And uh, that makes me just think about the moves. I ran into a friend, Katie, who I've not seen since 2002 on Friday night. And really when I saw her was when I left Wisconsin to move to Las Vegas, when I didn't know what I was getting into. And on this trip, I'm going back to Little Rock. And when I moved to Little Rock for graduate school, I had never seen my apartment in person. I saw it on Craigslist. I had some correspondence with the landlord and then I moved. I got in the car and drove. Dina was with me. And she was there the exact moment I saw it. I was like, oh, this worked out. <laughs> My guest this week, Dana Sidebottom, also shares a similar story about movement and bigger transitions in our lives. Dana is a facilitator. She is a community organizer. She is a beautiful space maker. She lives in Toronto. I was able to have a conversation in person with her when I was there a couple weeks ago. Dana does a much better job of sharing what she does in her introduction. So I will let her just do that. The conversation is such a fun conversation and it looks at a couple things that we really haven't talked about yet on this podcast. So here is my conversation with Dana Sidebottom. I am sitting in Toronto with at my very good friend Dana Sodbottom's <laughs> kitchen table, and we're recording a podcast that we've been talking about doing all week. I had the pleasure of meeting Dana earlier this year when I was in South Africa, and uh, she's coming on the podcast. So, Dana, please share the listeners a little bit about yourself. Hi, Greg. Well, let's see. I'm a Canadian, so we're on almost my home turf. I grew up in a prairies, but I've been living in Toronto for quite a while. And doing a lot of traveling, so met you in South Africa, I just bought a condo in Spain, so sort of exploring what it means to be nomadic in some way, um, but also feeling pretty happy to be back home and grounded back on Canadian soil. My professional career title is Director of Facilitation and Reporting for a small firm in Ottawa, and we bring sort of disparate groups to the table to talk about federal programs and policies and, and see if we can improve them. Which is great, and it allows me to do one of my favorite things, which is write. Um, I write a lot of reports and, and uh, you know, um, summaries and recommendations out of those meetings. I mean, in my personal life, I'm a sister, stepdaughter, daughter, niece, a uh, little bit witchy, a little bit weird, uh, pretty open-minded, good friend. I have a, a husband-ish character <laughs> who's around often. He might be on your podcast later on. And, and we talked a little bit about community building, and so... That's a great passion of mine, um, just finding great ways to bring people I love together and do interesting and cool and different things. So. Dana is gifted with all the skills that make her a really, really, really good 
community engagement human. I don't want to say officer. I don't want to say it because it's so much more than that. And um, her title says a very specific thing, but it doesn't really encompass all the gifts that she brings to the communities that she works with. So I just want to acknowledge that as we get into the podcast. Dana, all of my listeners, hopefully know, but if you're new to the podcast, listener, I bring on every guest and I ask them to share a short story about a time that they worked with other people to accomplish a common goal. And then I ask questions uh, so we can pull out lessons on collaboration from that. So Dana, would you like to tell your story? Sure. You're actually sitting in my story in this house in Toronto, which was an adventure from start to finish. Uh, we were living in a smaller city, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, my housemate, uh, Sam, and I, and my partner, Tom, who was living down the street. And when the pandemic hit, we all realized that we didn't have to be in Kingston, Ontario anymore for any of the career or schooling reasons that we had sort of ended up there. And while it's a lovely city, it's a very small city and we needed more space. Uh, and it's funny, we've been talking about space making all week. Right. And I just think, you know, it's been the capaciousness of, of life has been a bit of an, an ongoing theme. And so um, in March or April, sort of like right near the beginning of the pandemic, we started having this idea like, okay, what would it look like if we moved out of Kingston? You know, obviously we're going to Toronto. That's where our friends are. That's where the major airport is. That's where sort of life is happening. And then there were so many questions that came out of that. You know, Tom didn't live with us at the time. But Toronto's a really expensive city and, and him coming here to live on his own seemed kind of impossible. But we'd also never tested the theory that the three of us would live together well. You know, and also Toronto is way more expensive than Kingston is. And we were in the middle of this sort of upheaved time in society. We didn't know if we we're going to be able to make money long term or, or pay rent. <laughs> and so there's sort of a lot of anxiety around that. And then on top of all of that, it was me and, and I own this like my space is really important to me where I live, where I can bring people together, you know where I can hide from the world, it has to be pretty perfect. And so when we sat down and started talking about all these things, it's like, is this even worth trying? You know, maybe we just stay in Kingston where it's safe and we know it works and everybody stays in their like little respective cubby holes and, you know, and we keep living this small, but very lovely life. But it just, it wasn't worth it, I think. Like the risk reward factor, the risk was high, but the reward was, was really, really high. And, and particularly in the pandemic when like, sure, you couldn't, you know, go dancing with your friends or, or having, you know, an indoor dinner party, but all of our friends were sort of getting together in parks and, you know, bonfires and, and dancing and whatever. And we were sort of stuck in this, in this town much too far away and not able to enjoy any socialization whatsoever. So, and so I, to, to sort of bring this back to collaboration, all households, I think are a collaboration, but the moving of a household is maybe the ultimate example <laughs> of a collaboration I can come up with because I am definitely the one who was pickiest about the house, but I also had to keep in mind the needs of the other people I was living with. And Tom had quite specifically said that he would move in with us, but he had to have separate space that was his. And Sam was the only one of us that was going to work outside the house and have like a job that required her to be somewhere. So she had to be accessible and mobile and hopefully kind of close to the work that she was doing. And then I had a laundry list of things <laughs> that was just like <laughs> astronomically high. And, uh, and so we did, I, I'm not, I'm not kidding when I say we, I looked at 80 houses. It took us six full months to, to find where we wanted to be, make the move. And then it took us another three or four months to, to decorate and move in and settle. And in that settling, by the way, after all this fuss that Tom put up about how he needed his own space and he needed to be able to like close the door and, and live totally separately if he needed to. And so I did find a house that has a totally separate apartment in the basement. He lived there for exactly 48 hours before he decided that the ceilings <laughs> were too low and he moved upstairs and I moved into the basement. So that was a lesson. Like, <laughs> what do you really need out of the thing versus what do you think you need? 
but uh, that's that's the collaboration. It's I guess it's not much of a story except to say, and you can look up at the ceiling on top of you. This is like maybe the biggest story of the house, which was, you know, we move in, we settle in, we find this fabulous house, we paint it, we organize it, and the last thing I decide I want to do, and I know your listeners can't see it, is wallpaper the ceiling in my dining room, and this is a Dana dream, <laughs> and the other two decide that they are on board, they're going to collaborate with me, they're going to make this happen. And they had no idea at the time it was going to be a $700, you know, wallpaper experience. It took us three days. Uh, I don't know if anyone who's listening has ever tried to stick wallpaper to the ceiling before, but it's not gravity proof. <laughs> it's heavy. It doesn't want to stay there. You have to match up the corners, obviously. Sam is a perfectionist. So once she got involved, like I, my kind of default state is good enough, not hers. So I had to put aside my good enoughness and she had to really step in with her perfectionistness. And it stuck there with wallpaper glue for some parts, but as it sort of started to peel down over the years, we've actually gotten up there with like glue stick glues and like, <laughs> and Sharpies to like fill in some of the white gaps that we didn't want to see. So oh my gosh. this ceiling is sort of the, the absolute ultimate expression of our household coming together to make a vision come true. And, uh, and I think really speaks to the, the, the life we built with each other in this mad time of collaborating to, to get out of, you know, pandemic madness and, and find a safe space. So. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, listeners, don't worry. There will be a picture of this <laughs> wallpaper on the 20 minute collaborations Instagram page. I will make sure of it. The story you put underlined as it might not be a collaboration. Yes, it is definitely a collaboration. <laughs> They're all, we're always collaborating. I want to jump right into the high risk, high reward. Yeah, sure. And because I think this really sits with your day-to-day -day work as well. Yeah. In high-risk, high-reward collaborations, how do we get the buy-in of the people that we're leading or we're working with? Or if we're the facilitator, how do we create that space to ensure that everyone's in because it's more difficult to get them when there's a high-risk, high-reward situation? I think you start by thinking about is it high risk and high reward for everybody involved, right? And I think in my professional life, you know, certainly I work with the federal government a lot and it's low risk for the federal government and high risk for the communities they work with, right? And so, you know, the federal government has a list of questions they want answered or has, you know, a list of priorities they're trying to accomplish. And they say, well, why aren't we getting engagement or what have you? And it's like, because the communities are, you know, feel like they're putting their necks out and in talking to you and, you know, and you haven't addressed safety and, and, you know, so there's that piece first, like, have you really assessed that this is the same level of risk and reward for everybody coming to the table? And in my story, you know, Sam loved Kingston. She was the queen of Kingston. She was, you know, out every night. She had friends everywhere. She had a job she liked. She was really killing it. And it was Tom and I who like really felt strongly that our lives were here, our friends were here and we needed to make this move. And, uh, and so, for us, it was obvious, you know, of course, we'll make the move. Of course, we want to make this change. And for Sam, she's like, I love you guys and I want to be with you. But I need to know that, like, the life that I'm leaving behind is going to be, you know, worth what we build. And that was an interesting thing to have to work through. Like, what would make this move worth it for you? Like, talk to me about what rewards you need out of this, because I already see the benefit. But for you, you know, you're anxious. She's younger than I am. You know, her financial situation, she'd had less time to work and save money. So it just, it, it meant that I had to be extra aware. Um, and in certain situations, you know, when I was looking at houses and stuff, you know, sometimes I'd see things that I loved that were definitely out of our price range. And it came down to a conversation of like, okay, how do I lower the risk for you 
so that I get the reward I want? Am I going to take on more of the rent so that you can live in this house that I love and you feel less risky and the reward is good for both of us? But like, there's always an opportunity to have that conversation. But first, you have to acknowledge that it's not equal and, and you have to get it to an equal place somehow. This is such a beautiful example because the objective is so clear. Yeah. The objective, objective is the three of us are going to find a house in Toronto. And yet it's still in such a simple objective, it can still get so complex. And listeners, I can't reiterate this enough. If we can do this and this is this complex, we can do the bigger, harder stuff because it's just as complex. So I want to take that moment to parallel. The other thing that I really love about your story, and I'm probably going to go back to the space making a little bit because you and I have been talking about it all week. But first, let's touch base with the opportunity to acknowledge that time wasn't scarce in this, that you took your time. And we so often get into this worked up situation that we are time scarce when really we can slow down, we can breathe, and we can look at what's actually happening. So feel free to talk about the moving and your other work and time scarcity. Go. <laughs> Go. Um, so let's back up a little bit. A lot of things had changed in that time leading up, like even before the pandemic hit. Uh, my relationship had taken a different turn and, and uh, Tom and I had decided to sort of change the way that we interacted with each other and we were still feeling through the changes there. I had started a new career. Uh, Sam had all, all of a sudden realized she wasn't enjoying her career. So we're all in these like sort of crazy times of, of change already. And originally when, when we were going to make the move, I was sort of going to move first and kind of get myself established. And in my head, there was a, an important piece of like getting some space and we're back to space for myself and grounding myself in this new city. Um, and I thought sort of spiritually, it would sort of be representative of this change I'd made in other aspects of my life and give Tom and I a little space to sort out our own things. And so I was at breakneck speed when I started and I came to Toronto and I looked at all these apartments that were going to be just for me or maybe me and Sam if she could get her life together fast enough or whatever and then like Tom would come join us or we'd figure it out later or whatever but like I had to move and that's a pretty common thing for me like once I've made a decision it has to happen now and it ha has to happen because you know if this happens then I open up all this space for other things um <laughs> <laughs> I'm giggling because you know I'm so similar <laughs> but then the pandemic hit and that was a godsend because I'm pretty sure I would have left at something that might've turned out great. I don't know, but I would have left these people who are my family, my fundamental core, like rooted family behind to do it. And, and then I would have been hit with a pandemic by myself in a one bedroom apartment in Toronto, three and a half hours away from families. So I take no credit for that. The universe didn't gift me a pandemic personally, <laughs> but it certainly like sort of serendipitously worked out timing wise for me. And so the pandemic was sort of the catalyst or slowing down, and, and I'm not sure I've ever used the word catalyst in, in relation to a slowdown as opposed to a, a faster reaction, but it gave us a lot of time to find the right thing, to figure out what we wanted to do, to determine that we all wanted to go together, and then to sort of come to the table and decide if we were gonna go together, what we all needed to make that work. And then I just saw so many places that weren't gonna work for us that I just got into a mode of patience. Like, I kept saying things like, well, we could make this work or like, oh yeah, if I did this and this and this, and like we shifted these three things then maybe this would be the right fit for us. And I just, at some point thought, is this worth it? Like to move in two months earlier and then be stressed for the next six months while I try to force the situation and then have to move again in a year because I know it's not right. So that I think, and, and maybe, and I'm, I'm thinking as I talk, as most people do, was the great lesson was, I would rather take longer at the beginning <laughs> and get it right now 
so that future Dana doesn't have to deal with the fallout, then race into this and then a year later be in exactly the same spot or have to move again or make a shift. And I'm learning that lesson as I go in all aspects of my life, professionally in particular, like, okay, I could dash this off my desk and send it over and it would be at, you know, 70%, but it's coming back to me and I'm going to have to look at it again next week anyway. Or I can be honest with everybody around me, tell them how long it's actually going to take to get it done and, and totally closed, take that time and then never have to think about it again. And the older I get, the more I think, yeah, I'm just going to take an extra day and, and get it right the first time. Um, and actually that has made more time in the long run than, than the other thing where I'm always, right. you know, jumping between project to project to project and then something comes back from my in- inbox and then I'm three days booked out. So it's, you know, it's just, just a lesson right. doing it right. And in the example where it's 70% and you're going to get it back anyway, other people are mirroring what we're giving them. And so there's more back and forth. It's not just we have to remember that we, f- we forget that if we send it back, then we're going to have to send it back to them. We're not giving each. And so if we take that time, I love that. Thank you for adding that. Here is something else big that your expertise is listeners. Dana's this question me is going to just be ready. <laughs> God. Going back to space cre- creation. Sure. Really, and this is kind of also from our conversation at lunch today. Listeners, I'm sorry you weren't at lunch. Uh, Asking the right question. Mm -hmm. And so in creating space, in knowing that you were asking Sam the right question, you knew you were asking yourself the right question, and then also all the other work that you do. And, you know, you and I were sitting in the kitchen even talking about this a couple days ago. Share a little bit more about the importance of asking the right question. Sure. And I think uh, what I've learned in my work, which I have now applied to my personal life too, is in order to ask the right question, you have to have to ask a lot of other questions first. And what I mean by that is not that you are supposed to sort of ask the wrong question a thousand times until you get to the right (laughs) one, but instead way back at the beginning, you know, how do you want to have this conversation? Would it be easier for you if I emailed you a list of sort of my housing requirements and you read that through and considered it and then sent me back your list would you prefer to sit down and talk about it face to face? What makes you less anxious? What, you know, what do you need to work through in your own head before we can even have this conversation? You know, and, and big things that people don't like to talk about, like money, for example, right? And this is both in my personal and my professional life, right? right. Like, do you want to have a conversation about money right now? Are you prepared to have that conversation? Do you know your answers? Can you, can you define for me what those boundaries are? Or do you need three weeks to look at your records or look at this or look at that? And do you know that when you give me these answers, I'm not judging you for them? It doesn't matter to me what your answer is, as long as you feel comfortable with the answer you give me. So I think you start by sort of setting a foundation, we've talked about this a lot, of, of trust and, and where do we overlap and where do our sort of styles of communication match? And then you can get to the questions you need to ask. So for example, in the housing example, you know, okay, so how do you want to have the conversation you know, is it me and Sam and then Tom will decide whether he feeds in or are the three of us all going to decide together? And then after that, it was, okay, are we all going to have like a weekly meeting to discuss this? Or do you want to just do it, you know, ad hoc? Or are we going to get a text group going or what have you? And then we were in a pandemic. So I was the only one coming to Toronto to look at houses. So do you want me to video the houses for you? Or do you want me to take a whole bunch of pictures? Or are you just going to trust my judgment to move into something you've never seen before? And then we could get into the like, okay, now that we know how we're going to look, what we're going to, you know, what we're going to look for, tell me your specific list of needs or what's making you anxious and continue to check in if we're asking the right questions as we go along. Right. And that I think, you know, has been a long learning 
of wanting to leap right into the conversation because I'm a leap type person, as you know, and realizing that actually I'm doing a lot of disservice to the conversation if I leap like that. And still, you know, to this day, you ask a question and you can see it like on somebody's face, particularly face to face. If you've hit the wrong nerve, asked something too soon, somebody's not ready for that conversation. And I think being able to adapt in the moment, oh, okay, hold on, back up, back up. What about that question made you uncomfortable? You know, forget about the question. Talk to me about why you look anxious right now. I want to learn so much more from that question. And then three weeks later, I might be able to ask the same question again because you know that I know where your anxiety about that lies. And I've built some trust and we've had this conversation. This is where I get into trouble with this podcast because I know the time. And I'm going to ask you one question before I ask my final question. <laughs> and it's because you and I sit in the very similar space of the importance of a facilitator. Mm -hmm. And so before I ask you the last question, in like working with what you just said, because that is so true, all of this is so true, why must we have a facilitator at the beginning of these conversations? I think... You know, I hate the term neutral third party, no one's neutral, but I think having someone that either everyone has agreed to, for whatever reason they agree to them, right? Or having someone who can see it from an outsider's perspective is valuable because the anxiety that comes from talking to friends, families, coworkers, what have you, about these big topics can be mitigated by someone else saying, how do you want to have this conversation? What are we going right. to talk about? But also, you know, we need to pause. They need a break. They need this. They need that. Right. Like Sam and I, you know, we know each other so well that it would never occur to me to like stop a conversation midway and say, you know what, I think you need to sleep on this or whatever. But a mediator or a facilitator or, and in my facilitation work, I'm the one who's responsible for looking at those faces, hearing the, the sound of voices and saying, you know what, guys, we all have to take, you know, 10 and come back or, you know, this is the end of this conversation for the day and we'll set it up again next week. And I'm not invested in anything but the well-being and health of that conversation, you know? And there's a lot of pieces to that. In order to have a healthy conversation, you have to have healthy participants and healthy questions like that. But because I don't have a vested interest in the final outcome of the conversation, you know, one way or another, I get to make sure that the conversation itself is healthy so that the outcome works for everybody. And I think that's really, I, I think that's really the, the end of that statement is if you have someone whose job it is, is to keep the conversation healthy, everything else can, can kind of come as it comes. I'm really bad at it, by the way. Like in my pro professional job, I always have a vested interest in the outcome. <laughs> well, that's that in the way I teach collaboration. I believe that the facilitator should have a vested interest because they are with the program process through the entire thing. But it comes from a different space. It comes from a different vantage point. And the benefit for the facilitator is often much different than the key actors or the other co-collaborators. So thank you. And I, listener, if you have to go back and listen to that again, you should. Last question. Sure. What is lingering or what do you want to add on to? Or is there anything else that you haven't said that you would like to add to this conversation? I just think we've been talking a lot about making space. And I think... Collaboration is an interesting, it's an interesting word, and we've talked a lot about this, you know, it's not consensus building, it's not compromise, it's its own unique thing. But fundamentally, it's about giving everybody the space to get what they want out of a given situation. And the number of times that what I've learned in both my personal and professional life is that the best thing I could possibly do is get out of the damn way 
is is more than I can count, right? Like, am I digging my heels in because I need this or because I think my client needs this? Or am I just digging my heels in because I'm programmed to do that? I'm a stubborn person. I came in here with a goal in mind. And even though that goal probably doesn't fit anymore, you know, now I need to accomplish the goal. I think making yourself space before you try to make space for other people. And I think then, you know, using that space to let everybody continue to evolve and adapt and change. Like with the basement example, you know, Tom was like, I don't like the basement. Like, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> we can change that. But having that kind of flexibility and space around all the decisions you make and around all of the conversations you have, in my experience, is where the great collaborations happen. More space, less decisions, more flexibility, less sort of, you know, firm endings. You know, I, nothing's ever closed. And I know that scares people a lot, but I think in a true collaboration, it's always on the table. It's always something you can discuss. If we had time, I'd, I'd go into a story about that. But all I'll say is, yeah, I think just always leave more, more room for discussion. Thank you so much for sitting at the table with me and having this conversation. Thanks, Greg. This was really fun. High risk, high reward. We never talk about that. And in collaborations, it's a great marker or identifier, I it would be better, of how are we taking responsibility? How are we prioritizing? How do we see the importance of our work in that high risk, high reward? And how do we apply it? And how do we also get over ourselves if it's not as high risk as we think it is? The bozos on the bus, going back to that and humanity. And, you know, when we think about high risk, high reward. I also enjoy a game when I'm working with teams that we ask, how can this be elevated up a level and how can we drop it down a level to kind of give us an idea of where does this actually sit in what we want to get done and comparing to our mission and the work that we're really doing. Dana is a facilitator and I love that we got into the conversation of asking them the right questions and what are the right questions and knowing that sometimes it takes work to get to what the actual right question is conversation, taking things slowly, slowing it down, seeing the brilliance in each other. That all helps with finding the right conversations. Well, I need to get back on the road so Christine can edit this podcast and not yell at me. <laughs> in less than a month, we've got the next life cycle of collaboration. There's a few spots left. If you are really looking at how to slow down collaboration, design it, and work on your leadership, facilitation, and conflict resolution skills, I invite you to join us on this fun three-month ride. It's just one class per month with a little bit of homework, and there's a lot of convening and a lot of conversation that goes into our classes. If you have any questions, definitely reach out to me. The information is in the show notes. Take care of yourself. Hold space for your soul and your heart. And I will get you on the next 20-minute collaborations. You've been listening to 20-Minute Collaborations with international collaboration coach Greg Potter. If you're interested in working with Greg or finding out how he can help your organization, visit ggpotter.com. You can also follow him on all the social media at ggpotter.com. 
And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get all of the collaborative ooey-gooeyness that you've been longing for your entire life. This is an Artemis Bow Productions podcast.